0: A podcast brought to you by Energy Live News.
1: Harriet, firstly, thank you very much for joining us here at Talking Energy. Um, Let's kick off with uh, you just talking a bit about yourself. Uh, Just tell us what you do, your background and how you came about um, to becoming now the CEO of Ashton.
0: Well, um, I've spent many years working, focusing on international development. And in the course of that, it became very clear to me that we face three big issues in our time, and they are tackling poverty, tackling conflict, and tackling climate change. And the three are all linked. The problems are linked, and actually, so must the solutions be. So to, so how I ever first came across some of the issues we work on here at Ashton, was when I was working in the villages of South India with a rural development organisation, working really in the villages of the poorest of the poor. And there was a lovely woman I used to sit and chat to in the evening, and she would get up early in the morning, she would feed her family, then she would walk miles to work in the fields, Then she'd come back, she'd go out, she'd collect a few twigs, and she'd sit inside her tiny house cooking the evening meal for the family with these little twigs in this little fire. And always the smoke billows out, and within minutes she would be coughing and wheezing. She had the most terrible asthma. And it went on and on, and often she'd have to miss working, and she was extremely poor. So miss working means really in the end you're missing feeding your family. And that's an example about need to tackle the proper cooking equipment for women around the world, the clean cooking debate, that is one of the issues on which Ashton works. In fact, as many people die from indoor air pollution as from HIV and malaria combined, Mm So that always stayed in my mind. And then I worked for many years in fair trade. I spent about 15 years building up fair trade here in the UK and globally. Well, it's very addictive, fair (laughs) trade. It was really exciting to how we grew it from an idea that people laughed at to becoming absolutely a part of the mainstream way we all go shopping now, with actually 9 out of 10 people here in Britain recognizing the fair trade mark and buying the products, and so making a difference for farmers and workers in the developing world. And as I met those farmers and workers, in particular, for example, coffee farmer in Uganda, who first said to me, the thing is, Harriet, the weather's gone haywire, and it's ruining our crops and so the livelihoods because we depend on growing coffee. And actually, whole areas now, it's becoming harder and harder to grow coffee or cocoa because the climate's changing so much. Mm -hmm. And then people are being hit by mudslides and floods and typhoons and actually the more extreme part of climate change and that's when I really realized that the people who've done the least to contribute to climate change are actually the ones paying the highest price and right. they have the fewest resources to deal with it. So then I really welcome the chance to come at work at Ashton and think what can we do to play our small part in helping tackle climate change.
1: So what was the motivation would you say behind coming and joining this organization?
0: Well I think we do, I know we do, face the climate emergency. Mm-hmm. We know every single day there's another terrible statistic to slap us on the face and knock us into the kind of really big bold moves we need as an individual, as a community, as a nation, as a world to take if we're really going to stop global warming and if we're going to Manage the changes that are coming, come what may, and if we're going to stop it being worse than our worst nightmares. And so I really felt that burning desire to come and work for an organisation that was helping find the innovative solutions to climate change. And what I really love about Ashton, which connects a bit to my work at Fairtrade, is it's about the power of the living alternative. The people we give Ashton awards to, in and of themselves alone, aren't going to tackle climate change. But it is making a difference here and now, today, tomorrow, for those people who, for example, get renewable energy from one of our winners. But it also has that critical role of being a beacon, if you like, that shows, yes, of course it's possible. Of course we can do it. All the solutions are out there. We just need to get behind them and back them.
1: Uh, So talking about the winners, could you maybe give us a few examples of some of the winners? Yeah, well, let
0: me me tell you about (laughs) Colombia then, about Medellin, which has been famous worldwide for having the highest, it's the murder capital of the world. Actually, it had the highest homicide rates in the world. So the mayor of Medellin, had his problems, let's be frank. And he had another problem as well, which is that temperatures in the city were rising and rising. And of course, as temperature rise, that pushes up people's people's tempers. And that pushes up the tension within communities. So he realized one of the things he could do to tackle his two big threats was to bring everyone together and think, how can we cool down the city? And so what they created, this Green Corridors project. It's absolutely brilliant. And they took sort of areas that were previously rubbish dumps where the drug dealers hung out, where you would not go at night. And if you go to that same place now, it's a park with birds and bees, with children playing on swings, with mums chatting as they watch their children. And they've transformed all those areas into these green corridors. They've done it by training the unemployed so that they have jobs learning about gardening. And as a result, the temperature's come down by two degrees absolutely brilliant. And I think, well, if you can do that in Medellin with all the problems they had, come on, guys, we can do that in some other cities which have many more resources.
1: And I believe you've also launched a new toolkit Obviously we have the whole debate surrounding now uh, about climate change, you mentioned climate emergency earlier, Uh, we've got a few councils in the UK itself declaring a climate emergency, we had the UK becoming one of the uh, the first country in the world and now we've got a net zero goal for 2050. Um, So what do you make of all of this and also how is Ashton helping um, councils uh, deliver on their plans?
0: Well, I think we can all be actually really proud of the 120 now local authorities that have declared a climate emergency and of the big, bold ambitions that our government has laid out. So then the question is, uh, what do we do?
1: How do you get How that? are we
0: going to meet those big, bold targets? And actually, yeah. we, need to meet, we need to be net zero by 2030, not 2050. So we need to do it faster. And how do local authorities that have declared a climate emergency turn that into direct action? And so we put together a toolkit that built up a number of examples, many of them Ashton winners, but not only, that shows what can you do as a local authority. So let's give you one example. Look at housing, for example. Local authorities often have many, many people living in cold, old social housing. They're in terrible conditions. Now, by retrofitting those homes using, for example, innovative companies like Energiesprong, who've come from the Netherlands with a brilliant model, of making the tea cozy for the home, as they call it, elsewhere. They bring it in, no disruption for the tenants. The tenants end up with a warm home with lower fuel bills because they've insulated it properly, solar panels on the roof. It pays for itself within 30 years. And the tenants have gained by they no longer have drafts. They're no longer cold. The heating actually works. And as a result, the tenants are absolutely thrilled And I think in a lot of our work with the toolkit for local authorities, it is also about making sure that anything we do on climate change is also benefiting people in other ways, so that people come with us on this journey to take big bold actions for climate change. Yeah. So to give you another example of when it's worked really well, uh, just up the road here in London, Wolfham Forest, local authority embarked on an incredibly ambitious plan where they've closed whole roads to cars, they've encouraged walking, cycling, they've taken a whole range of measures. And as a result, the average life expectancy of the children born in the past few years has already increased by six weeks because they tackled the terrible air pollution that was plaguing their high streets. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it's a game for climate change, but it's also a game for you and me if we're walking our kids up and down the high street.
1: Um, And just going back to what you mentioned briefly earlier when we were talking about the 2050 goal uh, that the UK government has set, Uh, you said we should be aiming for 2030 and not 2050. Do you think that's feasible?
0: i think they should be going for 2030 yes absolutely because i think if you if you give yourself until 2050 well you know let's go and have a cup of tea <laughs> and let's do do a bit of you know brainstorming whereas if you're really feeling the emergency then you need to take fast and bold action immediately. Um, So I think they should set the bar high. And that will then drive the action that they need. Because if you said, we've got to be net zero by 2030, that would make sure you put in place the incentives, the policies, the subsidies, the tax changes that you need to drive some of those behavior changes. And I think in the way we do that, though, it is absolutely critical that we take people with us. Because if we don't, then people will, there will be a backlash. And we've seen that in Australia. We've seen it in the US. We've seen it with the Gilets Jaunes in France, initially sparked off, reacting against what people saw as an unfair increase in fuel taxes. So in the way we aim for 2030 to be carbon net zero must be done in a way that helps people understand how it can benefit them Mm -hmm. that works with them through decentralized initiatives involving communities to see what are their bright ideas, what are their best ideas. So if we're going to do this transition, and we're going to do it with big bold measures, it must be a just transition in which we look at those who will lose out, that we help make sure they get the skills for the new industries of the future. If we went really carbon net zero by 2030, Britain actually could be a fairer place to live. It would be greener, healthier, the air we breathe would be better we could have more decentralised jobs, whereas the fossil fuel industry is incredibly concentrated. Power and inequality in the hands of just a few. That's really what we've got to change. And there are also some brilliant initiatives out there, some of them Ashton Award winners, Mm -hmm. who are showing how this community-led change can come. So to give you one example from here in London, there's a group called Repowering that started working uh, in South London in Lambeth putting solar panels on social housing. And from that, they went on working with unemployed young people, helping them learn the skills of solar panels, then to create what they call energy gardens, where they have solar panels, but they're also learning to grow food. And they've done some of that on some of the overground train stations. And from there, they started growing hops. And from the hops, they've made an absolutely brilliant uh, local craft beer feeding into a Londoner's rage for craft beers. And here it is. It's called Energy Garden Ale. And I just think, what a great, cool idea. I have to say, it's a bit fizzy.
1: Um, we should You're have to put some it later. in the fridge, We
0: should. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of also think the fact it's fizzy sort of rather encapsulates repowering who themselves fizz with new ideas because they're led by the community. Um,
1: so, now just to slightly move on to a different topic, it's quite refreshing to see a woman in being in a leading position in a company or an organization, especially also a sustainable uh, organization. Um, So I just wanted to get kind of your um, experience in being in this position because you don't see many women, females, uh, in your position as a CEO of a company. So have you had any experiences where um, you think that maybe you were not taken too seriously?
0: Um, I'm so glad you asked this question. And I think it's absolutely spot on. It's absolutely true that there aren't, of course, as we know, there aren't so many women on boards in in all our mainstream companies. There aren't so many women CEOs. And that's true of the corporate sector. It's also true of the sustainable energy sector. It's also true of other areas where I've worked, such as tackling conflict or working in trade, also very male-dominated industries. Especially at the top. Very often you've got women doing a lot of amazing work at the lower levels, but the higher up you go, gradually, gradually the men start taking over. And one of my uh, favorite alleged Chinese proverbs is the man who says it cannot be done should get out of the way of the woman who's already doing it. (laughs) Perfect. Exactly. (laughs) Because so often there are women who have. Mm brilliant, bright ideas and they're very practical, they just get on and deliver it. And so, uh, and in my experience, so many of the people I've worked with have been very inspiring women. I have to say, I don't think that's been a factor that's ever affected my work. I think I've always been able to achieve the goals that I've set myself, whether it's in fair trade whether it's in Building Peace, or I hope I'll be able to here at Ashton, I don't think it's mattered to be a woman, but I think it matters that the sectors as a whole doesn't have enough women. Mm -hmm. We absolutely need more women at the top, and we need more women to come into sustainable energy and stay in there. So I think it would be Good for the sector to have many more women and many more women in senior positions. I actually think it would help our chances of reaching net zero by 2030 here in Britain and reaching the big global ambitions as well.
1: Um, The reason I actually asked this question was because when I initially joined the industry, which was I think about eight or nine years ago, um, I used to go to conferences which were filled with, dare I say, bald middle aged (laughs) men um, with suits. And everyone looked the same, Um, everyone wearing suits, and you walk into the room and you feel like all eyes are on you. So I felt a bit out of place sometimes. So I was wondering if you had similar experiences where you felt out of place because there were so many men around you?
0: I think it's compounding a number of things. I think it's being a woman, Mm. and then I think it's having a very different perspective. Because I think if you're an extremely wealthy woman working in the oil gas sector, I don't think you necessarily face all those problems. But I have sometimes felt, as a woman who has a much more community, grassroots-led view of the world, I do think it is more difficult then to be taken seriously. Um, by men, but I actually think what the, the, it's absolutely critical that we break down those barriers. There's a, it's really serious that we take diversity in all its forms really seriously. We absolutely have to have the voice of African women front and centre if we're going to make sure that everybody in the world has access to energy. And, and you know, the challenge of reaching the last 450 million people who still don't have any energy access to the grid or whatever. The way we're going to do that is it absolutely must involve more women.
1: And talking about sustainable energy, some of the projects that you support or innovative technologies that Ashton supports um, are obviously uh, helping the transition towards going into uh, the UK becoming low carbon. So how do you see this in a bigger picture? Um, How does it help? Uh, the economy in the UK and uh, the economy globally?
0: Yeah, I think that's an absolutely great question, and that goes to the heart of the reason that we produced the toolkit actually. To say you, we've scoured the country and we've found these incredible examples. In themselves, they're making a difference, but the real trick would be if all our social housing was retrofitted um, so that nobody should anymore be living in a freezing cold, drafty place where they're shivering their way through the winter and actually having mental health problems because they're so cold. That's happening today in 2019 in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. So I think we should be taking those brilliant examples and scaling them up in our policy, both at the local authority level, because local authorities can do a lot at a local level, where it's sometimes easier to get change than when you've got to shift the whole national debate. And then I think we want to feed into the national policies as well. Uh, We're delighted a commission has been set up, a cross-party commission, to look at how can it be a just transition. And so we'd want to feed our ideas into that and say, how can we make sure it does take care of those who will otherwise be left behind by this transition? We want to feed our ideas and our examples into the global debates that are going on. And we all expect that the next big climate change talks so that the next big cop will be coming to London in November next year. It's the next opportunity for the world to come together and really uh, reinforce their commitment to the existing goals they made but actually to go much much further. Uh, and I think we feel now there is an absolute outpouring of support from the public. We've seen it with Extinction Rebellion, we've seen it with the school strikes, with the children saying, come on government. And I think We see it with David Attenborough's television program, which, again, really made everyone go, we have to do something about this. So politicians have a mandate now. And on the back of that wave, we just need to step up all the policies that have been out there that we know will make the difference. And we have to implement them. We don't need to wait for shiny new technological fixes. We need to take the solutions we already have and implement them at scale and at pace.
1: So you think the government should do more in terms of accelerating the low carbon transition then?
0: Oh, absolutely the government should do more, and I think that means looking again at subsidies to fossil fuels, it's looking again at what's the level of support that we're giving to renewable energy, how much support are we giving to community renewable energy initiatives that will help drive the change from the bottom up. It's about looking at our housing policy and our health policy, going back to that point, that actually it can have benefits all around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you a lovely example. There's a company in based in Islington called Shine. And what they do is they give boilers on prescription. So doctors right. found that they kept having old people with terrible respiratory problems mm-hmm. coming in. They'd give them drugs. They'd get better. Next month, they're back again. Same right. problem. So you're just going round and round the circle dealing with the symptoms. Mm-hmm. The cause? defunct boiler. The solution, therefore, is not to give more drugs. The solution is to fix the boiler. Mm -hmm. And that's where this scheme grew up called boilers on prescription, where in that case, you tackle the root cause. And that old man now has a proper working boiler and a warm house, and he no longer has respiratory problems. So it's another example of how we need to bring together all the different departments. This is not for the department that deals with climate change. It's for the trade and industry, the health, the food and farming. It's for every part of our economy to think about how can we get to carbon net zero. Um,
1: And talking about Ashton, um, it it was set up by Sainsbury's, obviously a very well-known supermarket. um, And there have been criticism about supermarkets using too much plastic and having too much food waste. Um, So what would you say to critics who might say that this might just be uh, a CSR um, fad. Just to
0: be clear, Ashton was set up by somebody who is from the Sainsbury's family. Mm -hmm. But it has absolutely nothing to do with Sainsbury's supermarket, just to be clear. We're a completely independent charity, Mm -hmm. um, but founded by someone from that family. But it's nothing to do with the supermarket at all. Um, I think it's a very valid point, though, to say when companies start to make moves in the right direction, well, is it just greenwashing? Are they being serious about it? And I think, as particularly from my experience at Fair Trade, I believe you should celebrate every single positive move any company ever makes. To make the world more sustainable and fairer. So, if they start to do fair trade or if they start to reduce their packaging, the plastic packaging, you have to celebrate it and say, Brilliant, and now what are you going to do next? And because people get energised and infused if they get positive feedback from their customers. Mm -hmm. And you know, if the customer's always right, Customers always write when they want lower prices, allegedly. Well, the customers always write when they say they want you to do fair trade and be fair in your supply chain. And we want you to switch to green energy. And we don't want to have our apples wrapped in plastic. And we do want you to really take plastic out of your supply chain get rid of plastic bags and so i think we must encourage companies to do everything they can they must move much much faster and then you need government intervention and government regulation so that the pioneers the ones who are really taking the big bold moves aren't then undercut by cutthroat businesses who don't care about the environment because that is then creating an unfair uh, environment in which you do you don't want people to be punished for doing the right thing, you want them to be rewarded. So at some point you need government regulation and incentives to push everybody in the right direction.
1: Now, looking into the future, um, what would you say are some of Ashton's ambitions and plans uh, for the next five years or so?
0: Well, we really do feel there's a groundswell of support for major changes now. And so Ashton, too, is looking at, well, we're in a climate emergency. We've got 10 years to make these major changes. What is it that we can do to play our part and actually also to step up our game? So some of the things we're looking at, for example, is how can we could we encourage every single local authority across the United Kingdom to declare a climate emergency, have a really rigorous plan of action to implement it, and then have citizens' assemblies holding authorities to account, saying, are they meeting the targets they set? give you another example of the work we do, we also work in schools. So we work with schools to help them look at their use of energy. And in our scheme with them, we found that actually they save 14% on their energy bills and 12% on their carbon footprint. It's a win-win. Every single school desperately needs every single pound they can. So it's helping with carbon, helping them with their balancing their budgets. We've worked with 450 schools. We'd like to work with all 28,000 schools because then you're really beginning to have the big impact. And then there's another area we're really looking at how can we up our game? And that's finance. There's so many brilliant renewable energy initiatives around the world. They're proven, they work, they're small, they're crying out for investment funds. There's millions of pounds sitting in investment funds, saying they're committed to renewable energy. And somehow, we need to bridge the gap between those two. We need to make sure that really serious amounts of finance are flowing to those brilliant initiatives that can help the world get to net zero. And we need to just bridge that gap. And that's one of the things we're really wrestling with. How do we best do that?
1: And finally, uh, we touched on, obviously, climate change, low carbon economy, Women in sustainable job roles, women in power. Um, so to wrap it up, how would you what would you like to see happen over talking about all these topics we discussed? What would you like to see um, over the next couple of years or so?
0: I think over the next couple of years, we do need that revolution in our ambitions. We need to really think about how do we best empower people working at the community level to make the changes in their community, in their place, which is what everyone cares about first, to bring the sustainable energy, the future economy to life. How can we work together to say, how can we create jobs that are about sustainable energy, that do put women at the forefront, that do care for the unemployed young? And I think through doing that, we can help generate more and more of the ideas that will show us how to get to the big, bold changes that we need to make, that low carbon future, hopefully by 2030, but that it will make in Britain's case, I think it would make us a kinder, fairer place. And then there are many parts of the world where they also do need to tackle poverty. It's not just about tackling climate change. It's absolutely about tackling poverty. If you take Zambia, for example, in Zambia, only 5% of the population have access to electricity. So we really can make a difference if we scale up renewable energy with a focus, again, on the hardest to reach and the poorest. And then. Hopefully, in that way, we could get to those bold targets about climate change while addressing at the same time the inequalities and injustice that have also plagued our world.
1: Okay, Harriet, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Pete. Lovely to meet you.